Welcome to Farscape Friday, episode 42. I'm Kay, here with my co-host Taz. Hello. Today we'll be discussing the 20th episode of season 2, Liars, Guns, and Money, part 2, with friends like these. Let's get started. Welcome back. Here's a quick summary of Liars, Guns, and Money Part 2. With the bank robbed, the Moya crew shows up at the slavers ready to purchase Jothy, only to find out that Scorpius has bought the lot of slaves. John convinces the crew to form a dream team of Season 1 villains in order to steal back Jothy before Scorpius can do any damage. I love the trope of bringing back villains to be your new allies. It's always so much fun to watch and see how they interact with the crew this time around and see what they do next. Now that said, this episode, they actually do not dominate the what go happens because there's so much other stuff going on with Moya and with Scorpius and with Jothy. So we will get to them, but just for fair warning, they're actually going to be more involved in the next episode than this one. But let's start where this episode starts because there's a lot going on. And I want to start with John and Dargo's relationship because it picks up just as contentious as it ended in the last episode where Dargo is mad at John for not going along with his plans and he's blaming him for not helping him rescue his son. Yeah, I I think that my reaction to Dargo is on the one hand, I feel for him because he, he just came up with the money. He has his son. It's like within arm's reach. And then Scorpius pulls the rug out from under him. So I think that like a part of him blaming John for this. Yes, it does go back to John not immediately backing him up. But I think it's also this weird kind of subliminated anger that he has that Scorpius is involved in all at all. Because if John wasn't with them, then Scorpius would have no reason to have bought Jothy and he would be happily reunited with his son. So I think there is some other stuff going on there because his immediate reaction is <laughs> the slaver plays like this audio clip of of Scorpius being like, I have Jothy now and you will give me John Crichton. And he's really angry. And instead of mentioning Scorpius at all, really, he's like, well, if you'd followed me, you know, if you'd followed me in the first place. And I'm kind of like, I mean, Scorpius got there pretty much at the same time they did. Yeah. And the other thing with his anger at John is it also feels to me like something he can control, like he can't control Scorpius's actions. And so John is the one he can yell at who is right there next to him, who he can take out this anger and frustration with. And the other thing that that bothers me a little bit with Dargo here. And I know I'm a total Dargo stan. I mean, I defended him last episode that we did talking about how his relationship with John. But here I'm kind of like, Dargo, really? Because Stark is the one who messed up. And Stark is the one who accidentally led Scorpius to Jothy because basically Scorpius backhacked Stark's information, his computer information that led him to the slave auction. And at the end of last episode, we heard Dargo forgiving Stark for his role in in the information, you know, not bringing the information to light about Jothy immediately and keeping stuff back for them. And here, even though there is a tangible thing that he could yell at Stark for, he jumps straight over him right onto John. And I think that goes back to this kind of low-level anger he's had for the last two episodes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're definitely right there. Because initially... When Stark was like, oh, maybe he backhacked me. I was like, oh, man, Dargo going to kill him. And then <laughs> Dargo like just starts yelling at John. And I was like, I mean, I feel like on the last episode, we ended with John muttering to himself, playing chess with himself, you know, essentially fighting for control over his own body. And so I thought we'd kind of left it in a place where maybe Dargo would come to empathize with him. Mm -hmm. And... And so to kind of have him go back to that place where he's just still so mad at John, it was really a disappointment for me, like, as a friend, you know, mm -hmm. like, as a show, it made for an interesting episode. But friendship wise, I was like, come on, Dargo, cut a man a break. Yeah. But that's what makes this episode so tense, though, because basically, we have this perfect storytelling setup where Scorpius wants John Crichton. And so he is going to try and force John to turn himself in by taking Dargo's son, who Dargo wants beyond, you know, because he's his son. 
and he's driving a rift between John and Dargo, who have really had this really wonderful friendship that's really built up, especially over season two, the end of season one and the end and throughout season two. But there's this fundamental rift between them now just because it's Dargo's kid, you know? Yeah, I think the tension between Dargo and John in terms of their friendship being at stake, I think that really is just such a major focal point of this whole episode. And that actually is like the most tension that it has because you have Dargo who... In the look at the princess trilogy, he was really like John's go-to man. Like he was the only one on the planet that was really just for John. Like he was team John all the way. And I think that everybody else, including Aaron, including Rigel, everybody else kind of had their own viewpoint about what should happen. And Dargo was really the only one that was looking out for John. So here, after he finds out about Scorpy... (laughs) Dargo goes back to his quarters and he kind of has this interaction with an imagined Jothi where that Jothi is essentially accusing Dargo of choosing John over Jothi. And afterwards, he has this conversation with Chiana that I'd like to play just because of it does it does lend a little bit of empathy to Dargo's position. Hey, I heard what happened. You don't understand. I, uh, I was prepared to give Scorpius what he wanted. What? On the command for a micron. I was ready to take Crichton by force and deliver him to Scorpius. It was all I could do to stop myself. Is your friend. Jothi is my blood. He's my child. All I have left of my wife. Now, why is that not enough? I really appreciate that this scene comes directly after the one where he's yelling at John because you have this this contrast between the external Dargo, what he's saying and his anger and his feelings. And then you have this conversation, which is very much Dargo's interior monologue being expressed here in this, in this private moment with the mirror image of Jyothi and then with Chiana, where, yeah, he recognizes that he is threatening John, who is his friend and who he cares about because it's only for a one micro, like a split second. That's all he thinks about a split second where he's going to turn John in, recognizing that that's not what he should do or what he could do. And that makes me love Dargo that much more. And the, the acting here is so, so rich too, because Dargo is crying and his voice, the way it's dropped and you can hear it cracking. Uh, you really do get the what you as you said that the empathy for Dargo here. Yeah, I think because his externalized anger really makes you feel team John. You're kind of like, "Oh, come on. You know, you John did the best he could. They saved your life. They could have just left you to rot, you know." And I think that here it really does remind us that Jothi I think is a lot more than just a son to Dargo. I think Jothi is kind of this very very strong symbol of Dargo's life before the peacekeepers imprisoned him. And I don't mean that he doesn't love Jothi. And I don't mean that like parents wouldn't do anything for their children. But I think right here, he kind of gets at the nugget of, of why this quest, like this, you know, almost chaotic quest, quick, quixotic, quixotic. Yeah. Almost quixotic quest is so integral to who he is. And I think it's more than Rigel wanting to reclaim his throne because Rigel is power hungry or Zan wanting to find some place to find peace. I think that Jothi for for Dargo, it's like almost this end game. Like as soon as he has Mm -hmm. Jothi, everything will be fine. He will have what's the last remainder of his wife. He will have his son. He will be able to start his new life. And I kind of think that like for Dargo, if he doesn't have Jothi, there is no future. Yeah, I really like that. Also, it's almost like finding Jothi is his redemption. 
Mm. Because losing Jothi in the first place, losing his wife, those were failures on Dargo's part. He couldn't protect them. He couldn't save them. He tried to save Jothi by sending him away, but he ended up a slave. And so finding him is a closure, as you said, on his past life. But it's also like the symbol of him finally getting his himself together in order to move forward. Mm-hmm. It's really good. And so... It really is good. It's so good. So... John also blames himself for this whole thing, but I think not as strongly as Dargo, but he does understand that he is somewhat culpable in the sense that Scorpius is after him. <laughs> and yeah, that- he actually he actually has a really great line with Aaron when they're talking about trying to rescue Jothi in transit from the slave trader to the Shadow Depository in Scorpius, where humans are optimists, but humans with a death wish... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like he knows this is a bad situation that they're in. Yeah, I think that John is completely aware, just as Aaron was aware that like breaking into a shadow depository was a really bad idea when she was like, I've been there. It's really well armed. This is a death trap waiting to happen. I think that John looks at this whole situation and it kind of goes back to that metaphor of him playing chess, where he's been playing chess with Scorpius this whole time. Scorpius now has essentially the king. You know, Scorpius has Mm -hmm. like the end piece and John is just running out of moves. And so he kind of does this like last thing that in any other TV show, it would be like the preamble to something amazing happening. But this is Farscape. (laughs) So (laughs) going in, you're kind of like, ooh, how bad is this going to (laughs) get? So John's idea is to go back to all the season one villains and get them to help them because they're mercenaries. And they have like one or two solar days. I just want to point this out. Okay, season one was a long time ago, first of all. And second of all, should they have traveled farther than it would take to get them back to all these four people in like a solar day? Yeah, because it's not even like they go and then immediately pick them up and are able to come back. It's like literally they go. They have a conversation. (laughs) Have to convince them to come and then come back. So it's like everybody couldn't be more than like half a solar day away. Which leads me to my question, which is Moya has made several starbursts in between all of these locations, right? Mm -hmm. How was everybody able to get there with a short range craft? I know, right? Exactly. So that was the one thing that bothered me about this episode. So we're going to hand wave it off with Farscape magic as we always do and jump right in. So I'm going to play the montage quote of... John telling the, his plan to everybody, and then we in the middle you'll get we'll hear these flashbacks to the original encounters. Item one, we need a blood tracker. The Vocarians, they're the ones who tortured me. They'll be able to find Jothi no matter where Scorpius stashes him. Item two, we have to pound our way into the depository. For that, we need a she. Scavengers and cowards. Yeah, who can breathe fire that burns through metal like Kleenex? Three, we need a tabloid. Tabloid. Remain where you are. They're nothing but barbarian extortionists. Their gauntlet weapons are awesome in close combat. And finally, we need the Zenith Pirate. That's impossible! An electrostatic scan, it instantly disables ships. And what makes you think all these Zeltics are going to help us? Cash. These guys are mercenaries. They want money, we got plenty. We get them, we go in hot, we kill Scorpius, and we bring your son back. <laughs> I love, like, the action-y music that's just like, oh, yeah, we've got the team together. <laughs> <laughs> and that's actually kind of what's hilarious to me is because this is totally that episode of, okay, for example, it's like the leverage episode where they have to go get their enemy crew that was like against them in the two mm-hmm. live crew job and they have to go get them. And then it's all great because they all work together and it's awesome. And I'm kind of like, oh my God, this is Farscape. What's going to happen? <laughs> because I think it's interesting that they do play these like clips in the middle because I want to remind all of our listeners that we all have the benefit of going back in your DVDs or going back in your Amazon Instant Stream and rewatching episodes. Or for that matter, you could, as I have done on a couple occasions, watch the entire series of Farscape very, very quickly. 
But Taz and I both watched it in the original run, which means that this episode is very a very, very long time ago in like real time from the season one episodes. Not only that, but because sci-fi channel had this weird hiatus like they played the first 18 episodes of the season over the summer and so like a clockwork nabori happened in like august and then the last four episodes of the season which is the liars guns and money trilogy plus diabetes economy happened in like january or march of the year so that's like a year and a half after you these original the original episodes aired over the summer mm-hmm. so it was a really long time and I had them on VHS, and I also rewatched the series a lot. So I remembered who everybody was. But if you weren't, you know, you were kind of stuck with whatever recap sci-fi channel decided to play. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I also found it interesting that they're going back to season one villains. And I think it's because season one was a lot more episodic. Like, essentially, they're yeah. going back to all of these episodes that we won't call them the bad episodes. Because if you've listened to the podcast, you know Taz and I loved most of these episodes. But these are the episodes that if you're trying to convince somebody to get into Farscape, they are the ones that a lot of people are like, oh, you can skip some of those because they aren't as good as what comes later. And they're also not as integral to the continuity of the whole show. As he says, they're the mercenaries, right? They're the one-offs. And they are not the longstanding villains of the Peacekeepers. They are not people in Scorpius's posse or related to that situation, or the really super scary Nabari, or all the other super scary villains we've had this season that are have been more feel like more long term, have more ideological reasons for doing what they're doing. No, these guys just want money, mm-hmm. and that's how they're gonna hook them. So afterwards, everybody kind of splits, and they go and they go on, and they get their respective people, and it is actually paired pretty okay. I'm I am just gonna hand wave the fact that they're all in short range casts. <laughs> And I'm like, honestly, if you could get to Moya from any of these places within a day, I don't understand how Grace didn't catch John in season one. <laughs> that just seems so silly. Anyway, okay. It is silly, but don't worry. Grace has another storyline now. We don't have to have him be the villain anymore. Yeah. Okay. So John is paired with Bakesh, who is the Tavloid or Tavlek, depending on which lexicon you want to use. And I just adore in that previous scene where they all correct John because he can't say it right. Uh, Kills me every single time. (laughs) So Bakesh is one of the Tavleks. And as you remember, they kidnapped Rigel and thrown for loss. And he is now reformed, which is kind of hilarious because now you have basically someone who is a former drug addict. And John is now trying to convince him to be an addict again. And I was kind of side-eyeing the ethics of that of that conversation that they have right there. Yeah. Well, actually, it's interesting to compare it to the original Throne for a Loss episode. Because in the original Throne for a Loss episode, essentially, they have this Tavlek who comes aboard and they kind of accidentally kidnap. And then Zan essentially forces him to go through withdrawal to become sober. And so originally Taz and I had had kind of some weird objections to like the, to like the ethics of that. Cause it did kind of come off a little bit like say no to drugs kids. And <laughs> um, so it's just really dark here that John is essentially like, Oh, you're sober. And now you're in a religious order that believes that you shouldn't be violent. How about if you're really, really violent instead? <laughs> yeah. And he has poor Bakesh like with his hands behind his back secured and just starts yelling at him. But I wonder how much Bakesh really had gone off the drugs because he wanted to clearly, but he was, you know, he still went, was going through withdrawal sim- symptoms and that's ultimately what gave him away was because he, he couldn't get access to the, to the gauntlet and gave away where its position was and John grabbed it and stuff, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in the end, he has this really great line about, okay. I'll go with you. And John asks, you know, what about your redemption? And Bakesh is like, you know, that's easier with a lot of money in your pocket. <laughs> I, it was pretty good. He's like, yeah, it's really easy to, he's like, it's really easy to be religious when you're rich. I was like, yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's true. Uh, legit. <laughs> legit. Um, 
Also, I think the other thing that we should talk about a little bit about here is the difference in situation. Because as much as they're desperate for the crystal that Rigel stole in Throne for a Loss, I think that here the stakes are obviously much higher. They're not only after Dargo's son, but John himself is kind of in a really dark place. And mm-hmm. I think that the effect that the chip in his head has had on him is a little bit obvious here. I don't think that John without a chip would have done what this John does. And I don't think it's just time. I do think that the effects of Scorpius's claws in John's brain are evident here. This feels mm-hmm. like something that Scorpius would do is essentially tie someone up and then torture them by making them go through withdrawal. Right. And wait for them to hang themselves essentially and give, give up, mm-hmm. give up what they want. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about it in that way before. And it kind of goes back to what the Lady Theron said on Tumblr about some of John's characterization in Crackers Don't Matter, Mm -hmm. which is really excellent meta. You should go to our Tumblr. It's near the top about how Scorpius is the brain chip really influences John's behavior. It's excellent meta. And I think that's kind of what we might be able to interpret this scene as being as well, Mm -hmm. like you were saying. Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely seconding the Lady Theron meta because amazing. Oh, also, while we're doing Tumblr shout outs, I would like to give a <laughs> shout out to Firecat because she pointed out, how did Stark know about Jothy? And once that question hit my brain, it was the ET question and I cannot unthink it. So I'm going to expose it to all of you because I would like to know how Stark, a character who spent about two seconds with Dargo on screen somehow learned about Jothy, the secret that jo- that Dargo has kept close to his chest for decades. I have maybe an answer for that. I don't know if this really holds water, given that I thought about it for all of about 10 seconds. But maybe he got it from John, because he did comfort John after the Aurora chair in The, um, the Hidden Memory Ooh. in season one. So maybe he got information from John that bled through about about Dargo from that conver- or that sharing mm-hmm. experience, giving experience. I don't know because we never really find out how how much of Stark's sharing because he has that glowy thing with his face going mm-hmm. on is two way or one way or what. Mm-hmm. I mean, clearly there's a two way thing. He's a receiver too. We see that in this episode, but but when he's interacting one on one in a controlled setting, I don't know. Mm. But maybe it came through there. I would actually. That's interesting. Okay. That makes it less of I don't a brain know. tweezer because we do know that it can come through because in last episode, he talks about when he helped the other character pass, you know, in, through the veil. Essentially, that's oh, when right. he stole all the information. And this was very specific right. information. But yeah. that means like how much other stuff does he know about John Crichton? Creepy. Creepy. Okay, but we knew Stark was super creeper. <laughs> like, Stark is like a giant creeper. <laughs> Poor Stark. Oh, man. Yeah. Love you, dude. Not a lot, but... I don't know. Yeah. Kind yeah. of. You're, you're very convenient for plot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So John has effectively got Bakesh to start doing drugs again. <laughs> yep. And meanwhile, Aaron has found the Xiang vessel and it is kind of floating in space and she finds the captain. Do we ever learn his name? I don't remember his name. Uh, no. Okay. Captain. Um, <laughs> we, you know what? Captain Xiang. <laughs> yeah. Listeners, give us, l- let us hear, because I know they said it in the original PK Tech Girl episode, but I'm not looking it yeah, up. Yeah. I, <laughs> I can't remember what it is. Anyway, they had apparently been attacked by a stronger force, and the rest of his clues had fled, and he remained behind to cover the retreat, and he's got a wound, and. He tries to prove that he can still belch fire, and he does. And Aaron has this great line of, I've seen bigger. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, she's like, you're kind of useless to me if you can't do this thing, if you can't do your fire trick. But she takes him along anyway. So we have one of the Xiang along. And it doesn't have weird ethics problems with that conversation. Yeah, that conversation's like a little more straightforward. Also, I was kind of laughing because I had to wonder. I was like, did he really stay to cover their retreat or did he stay because did he they, just got left? Yeah, I think he probably just got <laughs> left behind and like they didn't have yeah. any pods and the other people were faster than he was. Right. And you saw how quickly they turned on each other last time we went through the Xiangs with PK Tech Girl. Yeah. So Darko goes after the blood trackers and the female blood tracker is pregnant. 
yay for families. <laughs> They're running from peacekeepers who they pulled out of a contract with. Mm-hmm. And the blood trackers are from Till the, Rud- Till the Blood Runs Clear, which is the Western episode mm-hmm. where we first meet Furlough. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, definitely keep Furlough in your mind, people. We'll periodically remind you of her. But yes, because one, she's awesome. And two, she's still around. <laughs> But so Dargo comes after them. He shoots the peacekeepers that are trying to kill them. He takes them back to their ship. And at first they're like, we don't really want to do this because, you know, the woman is pregnant. And then the woman's like, you totally should do it because we need money and because we owe him. We're having a baby. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, they need a nest egg. So the male blood tracker goes back with Dargo. Which uh, I cannot remember episode three, so no spoilers, peeps. But like, I'm not sensing good things about that one. I was like, as soon as I knew she was pregnant, I was like, ah, don't tell me anything. Okay, I won't say anything. Unless it's good. Is it good? (laughs) No. Oh, God, I knew it. Uh, I mean, Um, don't, yeah, don't think about it. Well, next episode, we'll have more on the blood trackers. (laughs) basically because i kind of do remember what happens oh man i see this is when i wish i remembered more because like i know farscape is like uh so when it's good it's so good and then it like the other half of the time it just breaks my heart and i'm like why (laughs) (laughs) oh man yeah okay and finally we have rigel who actually spends time with moya zan and chiana before he goes off on his mission i think he's waiting Mm -hmm. for a transport pod to come back but we're going to skip ahead to his recruitment drive first and then we'll get back to the moya crew but rigel goes to recruit the zenitian pirates who if you recall he outplayed with the the gambling game in the flax episode Mm -hmm. You know, the one where John and Aaron nearly slept together when they thought they were going to die. What he discovers upon encountering the Zenitian pirates is that who should be the new captain of their crew? None other than his arch nemesis, Durka, Uh, who survived survived the explosion at the end of uh, Durka Returns when Chiana joined the crew. No, who survived being left in space. Remember? Left in space. He goes off and he's like floating in space, but his shuttle doesn't work or the ship doesn't work at all. So then they're like, the Nabari are going to come for you. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Someone else got exploded. Yeah, um, uh, oh, I'm thinking of Lorak. Yeah, you're thinking Sorry. of Lorak. But so... Yeah. Too many spaceships going out into space. <laughs> Too many like... Farscape season one and early season two is pretty good about like leaving like these deaths kind of ambiguous do you know to me like yeah it's like the ethically okay way of killing somebody (laughs) (laughs) exactly well it lets you bring characters back when you like the actor yeah um which happens here (laughs) and gives rigel this really great moment he's called a truce with durka and the zanishan crew he brings them aboard his pod he lays out the deal Durka is menacing and is like, I'm going to rip you to pieces because he is cruel and he wants to torture Rigel again. And Rigel is, you know, probably legitimately scared. But this time, this time he has a plan. And it's pretty awesome when he electrocutes Durka with one of the wires on the pod and knocks him out. And and by so doing, he wins the respect of the second in command, Zanishan pirate, who really just wants money. Yeah. And also, I think he wants to be in charge because Jerka essentially came in, killed the captain, took the throne, and now he's been running it with like an iron fist, apparently. And before, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, before the Zanishan pirates were pretty cruel and unusual, but I kind of feel like Durka is a whole different sort of cruel and unusual yeah, it's like it was their job to kind of be cruel and unusual to get what they wanted. But then Durka takes sadism to a whole new level. Yeah, exactly. So Rigel gets the pirates on board and then everybody comes back. But of course, as soon as they all come back, it's your typical dream team scenario where they all immediately start fighting until Rigel shows up. And here's the quote. Stop that ridiculous mumbling, will you? Ah, you're not here to fight each other. The Tavlex raided our village. That's why I asked you forgive me. Tavlex are treacherous scum. Criminals! Don't everybody on board this ship. You are being paid to work together. That's right. And that's what we do to people who don't. Right. You're here to do a job. Start acting like professionals. (laughs) (laughs) 
So what you can't hear in the audio, but what you see on screen, is Rigel walks in like a mob boss and throws Durka's head onto the floor. And he is clearly D.E.D. dead. And he gets everybody's attention. And it's kind of glorious. Because not only has he calmed the situation down... But he has killed his arch nemesis finally. And it's just, oh, it's so good to see Durga's head on the floor. And I kind of love Chiana congratulating him. (laughs) (laughs) Nice job. That's what your best bud does. Congratulates you when you kill the guy that tortured you for 100 cycles. Pretty much. Um, I also want to point out that, okay, I love this scene so much. I think that this is literally like my favorite moment of the entire episode because it's just so satisfying on a hunt, so many levels. But also, I have so many questions about him just carrying Durka's head around. <laughs> I'm like, was he going to yeah. put it up in his quarters? Like, what was his long term plan for Durka's head? Because it's like he comes back on Moya. It's not like the head was like, it's not like, I don't know. I'm like, what? Okay, cool. Maybe he was going to put it up in his quarters. (laughs) Yeah. And then next episode, the head reappears. I'm just going to go ahead and spoil that. It reappears again. Okay. You've got me really intrigued. Oh, yeah. But it's it's the reason why there's a fandom saying that, you know, no one's dead until you see their head. (laughs) Or at least an old Farscape fandom that used to be a thing. Like, you don't believe they're dead until you see their head. Gosh, they should apply that to X-Men comics also. They should apply that to everything. I'm sorry. And everybody's mother who died off screen and then didn't die. No, you need their heads. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I'll go for that. Okay. Because I also, um, I'm also like into anime. So I watch like fairy tale and like seven sins and stuff like that. I mean, I know like really awful anime. But my issue with those two animes is that literally a character will like get to the point of death. You will assume they have died. And it turns out they will not have died. And I'm like, Yeah. okay whatever and i will say this is one thing i respect george barton for doing with game of thrones the novels i read read for yeah i read the first novel when i was 14 so there that's my history with game of thrones but when he kills people they usually stay dead (laughs) like 90 percent of the time they stay dead yeah so i can respect that (laughs) yeah i think we should have a new rule for all future (laughs) tv shows when somebody appears to be dead they should just be dead. They don't get to come back. <laughs> exactly. Unless they come back for the sole purpose of Rigel cutting off their head and dropping it like a mob <laughs> boss. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Man. And I say that I say that knowing that I really don't want most of my, my favorite characters to die. So Yeah. Anyway, so Rigel the mob boss. That should be a television show. Yeah. I'm on board with that. That's the recruitment storyline that we get in this episode. Mm-hmm. So it's not like a lot of movement happens with it other than we have now gathered all the pieces because that scene with Rigel happens actually quite close to the end of the episode. Yeah. Yeah. It pretty much is that. And then one other thing happens and then episode ends. Yeah. Because most of the bulk of this episode has been taken up with the John and Darko thing, but also the fact that their money is spiders. I mean, I'm serious. I am never going to be over the fact that they robbed a bank and their money is spiders. (laughs) Not okay. Okay. But there's a scene between Scorpius and Natira that explains what's going on. Because in the previous episode, part one, Natira had swapped Scorpius's cargo container with the beryllium things, beryllium nodules, ingots, that she would go on to give him instead. So it's Natira trying to rip off Scorpius yeah. and then Stark trying to rip off Scorpius gets them these ingots which turn out to be spiders so it's this long complicated chain of people trying to screw each other mm-hmm. no I mean and I like I knew that in episode one because I was like ah Natira yeah. obviously I mean and Scorpius actually calls her on it because in the episode he's like so you don't seem to care that your money got stolen and she's like yeah Meh, it yeah. was spiders <laughs> and actually speaking of screwing each other where they have that conversation is after the most awkward sex scene i think i've ever seen in my life so apparently things you're gonna learn in season two farscape fandom is that scorpius is into breath play which totally okay uh you know your kink is not my kink 
Yeah. There's actually a couple interesting Natira and Scorpius scenes. Then maybe we should talk about those next. Okay. Because it's clear that they've known each other for a very long time. And I'm going to actually play one of those quotes between them where Scorpius is upset about them not being able to find Jothi quickly enough in this lot, lot of 10,000 slaves. Yes. And he's getting angry about it and his suit's heating up. Why do you want him so badly? You destroyed my gamic base. Revenge? He's not a Scarab. You wouldn't waste your hatred on anything else. This is why I can't have you around. You know me too well. Without me, you'd still be the same angry, hot-headed young creature I took in so many cycles ago. Without me, your head, among other things, would be a trophy on the wall of Peacekeeper Command. We were made for each other. So what I like about about hearing that is I think it's it gives some really nice depth to Scorpius's character. Like here's someone who's known him for a really long time. She knew him before his suit was upgraded to what it is now. She knew him uh, before he had become part of Peacekeeper Command and joined the Peacekeepers to win the position that he has now. And saved his life at one point, probably, and then here he's returned the favor and saved her from the Peacekeepers. And so I really love the depth it gives to Scorpius of a person who has a past, who has motivations that she knows about because she has this history with him. And it's just really nice to see that kind of character building going on. And I will say that my pacing issues with this episode aside, I think that the development of Scorpius is really good. People have kind of referred to sh- to Scorpius as like a Shakespearean villain because I think when you most villains in Shakespeare there's kind of like this almost empathy you can develop for them because they are given like monologues and they're given these like great lines and this is kind of the first time that we're seeing that expanding of who we know Scorpius to be. And it's when we kind of get to see behind the curtain to back when he wasn't the all-powerful puppet master you know, the guy that's literally playing John chess in his head and with John's life. So I think that this episode really does make me like both him and Natira, their sadomasochism aside. And I'm not judging sadomasochism. (laughs) I'm just judging that like the episode seems to kind of be judging it, which is kind of hilarious. (laughs) Yeah, I really like the way you put that with like, the developing empathy with Scorpius because he is such a well-crafted villain and you'll see that as the series progresses as well. And I think here we get one of the first inclina- inclinations, like we already knew he didn't like the Scarin. We learned that in the Look at the Princess trilogy. But here we have like Natira pointing out that the Scarins are his motivation, his underlying motivation for everything. We don't know the details of it yet. All we know is that he's half Scarin and there's some drama going on there. But the fact that there's this deeper layer to him is really nice. And as you said, it gets lets us empathize with Scorpius a little bit mm-hmm. or setting the stage for us to be able to empathize with him. Yeah. And I think that kind of reminding us of the history that Natira and Scorpius have, I think it really does make their sex, which is kind of, um, like I said, it's like breath play. It's super clearly like sadomasochism. It makes it almost like understandable. Do you know what I mean? You're like, oh, okay, these are two people who have like been in a consensual sexual relationship for many, many years. So like, Mm -hmm. cool. Apparently they're into breath play and like (laughs) (laughs) non-con. Yeah. Well, here's another question for you because they are, you know, Natira is this like exoskeleton kind of creature. Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly she's a humanoid because she's played by an actress, but like how much of that is not, is our perception because we're humans and what we read into it as opposed to what she finds normal for sex for her, you know? I Because she's an alien. <sighs> okay. <laughs> I mean, I'll go with you there. I'll go with it's you, just, but at the same... It's a hypothetical. Yeah, like, at the same time, I'm like, the scene opens with him, like, literally, his hands are around her neck. He's strangling yeah. her. And I'm like, okay. I mean, like, maybe, <laughs> you know, there are all sorts of weird sex stuff (laughs) fair enough fair enough i just wanted to point out that aliens sometimes have a different standard of normal 
So we have this underlying motivation of Scorpius really hating the Scarens that we've just kind of brought up. And we know that he is half Scaren. And what is also revealing, I think, about Scorpius is when he finally meets Jothi. So he sent off Lieutenant Bracca and his other folks on the Marauder to go find all the Bannock slaves, go through all the Bannock slaves, find the needle in the haystack out of this 10,000 slaves, which is Jothi, and bring him back. And they do that. And when he meets Jothi, he has this this really revealing conversation because Jothi is also a hybrid. He is, Dar- is Dargo's son. He is a Luxon and a Sebation. So I'm going to play that and then we can discuss the inner psyche of our favorite villain. Car Jothi, is it? What the frell are you? Some kind of mutant? His mother was a Sebation. She was raped by a Scaron. Did the Luxon rape your mother too? No. Your father abandoned you to a life of slavery. Is it his lineage you hate the most? My mother was murdered by her brother. Does that answer your question? So you hate Luxons and Servations equally. How very interesting. You bought 10,000 slaves just to get me? What do you want? From you, nothing. But your father would give me something I want very much. Pray to your Luxon mystics. But he loves you still. So the first question Scorpius is asking Jothi is basically, how much of yourself do you hate and which side of you do you hate most? Mm -hmm. Which is, I think, a reflection more of himself than of Jothi, who's clearly kind of puzzled by this line of questioning yeah well and moreover i think jothi's response of well i mean my mother's brother murdered her and that's what imprisoned my father does that answer your question and scorpius can't even take that to mean oh so that means you hate Savations and not luxons he's like okay so you hate them both equally Right. And I'm like, oh, that's like kind of revealing <laughs> that it doesn't even occur to scorpius that somebody could not hate the um the non-sebation side of themselves yeah and i think it's still even a leap for him to go ahead and and assume that because a sebation murdered his mother that he hates all sebations why not it just be his uncle that he dislikes yeah or peacekeepers who are a subset of sebations you know Mm -hmm. there's a lot of assumptions that go into the into scorpius scorpius's response that are not necessarily intended with jothi's meaning and you know Jothi doesn't get a whole lot of room here to expand, and so we don't really know what he's thinking when he responds that way at this point. But, yeah, I think it says a lot more about Scorpius than about Jothi. Yeah. And I will admit, I think that what I really enjoy here, and like we said, Jothi gets a lot more breathing room later on, so don't worry, people, you'll hear more from him. But what I really like here is that there's kind of this trope in TV shows where the person that was sent away or like the child that was not really abandoned, but like abandoned, it always ends up that they come back and then they hate the person that was kind of not really at fault for whatever occurred. Do you know what I mean? Like this is a huge creator of villains. It's also a huge creator of conflict of like, Oh, they hate me, but it wasn't my fault. Like this is something that happens a lot in TV shows Mm. and, um, or like the, Oh, the baby that somebody didn't know about, you know, and they hate right, them. and they you know, yeah, they hate the parent. And and what yeah. I really really love is that Farscape just completely avoids that. It's like, nope, Jothi is a hundred percent aware of why his dad left. He is a hundred percent aware of who was actually at fault. You know, he doesn't mm-hmm. think it was Dargo. He knows who was at fault. So it just, I don't know, it was just really satisfying that I was like, oh, good, one less drama that we have to worry about. And actually, you hear that when they reunite, when Jothi and Dargu reunite with each other at the end of the episode. Actually, I'm just going to play that. Father? Jothi. Jothi! It's you! It's really you! Father! (laughs) You're choking me! Everything you've been through. So many cycles. 
your fault. I never stopped thinking about you, trying to find you. I, I almost lost hope. I didn't. I knew you would come for me. <laughs> My son! My son! Escape Scorpius. He let me go. He what? Why? We'll get to the last part of that conversation later. But I just, I just want to point out how, how much relief and joy and everything is in both Jothi and in Dargo's voices there when they finally see each other again. And I really also like Jothi saying at one point. You know, I never doubted that you would come for me. Like he was holding on to his father as his rescuer for his whole life that he was imprisoned. And that's just like his own talisman that he had. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for certain. Like I said, it just it was really refreshing because I think that Farscape has a tendency to do things dark. And so on the one hand, I was really expecting this kind of trope. And then it just didn't happen. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And it just made their reunion so good rather than, you know, your typical bittersweet. And I was just it was like, just like a breath of fresh air because there's been so mm -hmm. much bad stuff that happened in this episode. And it was just kind of like, oh, thank goodness. Something nice is happening. Of course, it comes at the cost of, like we said, the end of the the end of that quote, which is that John has turned himself in. Yeah. And this is actually one of the later scenes of the episode. And Aaron is in the room too. And her face, she's happy for Dargo and Jothi, happy to see them reunited. And then the realization comes over her face. And Claudia Black, oh my God, she is so good. And you just see everything that she is feeling right there. That when she realizes that John has turned himself in. Yeah. Because their plan to rescue, rescue Jothi while he was in transit failed. Yeah. They were too late. It's so good. It's really, really good. All the Emmys for Claudia Black retroactively. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm serious, though, because like Aaron is such a character of few words. And Claudia Black just does so much with like her face and her body. And just, you know, honestly, the difference between Aaron smiling and Aaron like and Aaron just like neutral and Aaron upset a lot of times. There's nothing going on with her mouth. It's just like her eyes. And I'm like, I have mm -hmm. no idea how Claudia Black does that. <laughs> but it is amazing. And it will make you feel in the place where it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> True facts. Yeah. But so let's go back to the reason that they don't have any money. Right. And I would like to play a clip of Chiana and Rigel stealing from everybody. <laughs> yeah. So they, they plan to skim off the top because they need a little bit of an insurance plan. And so they go digging into the crates. This is right after everybody has left to go assemble the dream team. With the exception of Rigel, who hasn't left yet. Empty. <gasps> what the frill? It's gone. Someone's beaten us to it. But who? Crichton's too honorable. Baron's too dull. Dargo's too... Mm. Say it. Simple. Yeah, but he's not a thief. Somebody is. We've been robbed. And at that point, they hear the metal the metal creaking and Chiana falls through the floor. So can I just... I just love... Rigel's slight hesitation before saying anything about Dargo in Chiana's presence because I feel like he knows that if he badmouths Dargo to Chiana, Chiana will slap the shit out of him. Yeah. Well, also, it's like, I don't know, it's still their broship thing, you know? Like, I feel like he... Oh, totally. Their friendship is so good to me. Like, I just love Chiana and Rigel's friendship. I love how, like, this whole episode... They call each other on things. And <laughs> and also just that is like a very friend thing to be, to be like, uh, I mean, I don't particularly like your boyfriend, but I mean, I'm not going to say anything <laughs> about him to you. And then she says, you can say it yeah. because she knows. She knows. And, then he, and she kind of agrees. I think that's part of the reason she's with Dargo, you know? Yeah. Yeah. This 
the two of them sneaking off into the into the cargo hold actually kind of reminded me of a bug's life when they snuck in to see what was in the secret container that the the marauder crew had brought aboard Mm -hmm. it's that same kind of feeling of hey there's a mystery here we want to go make sure it's not mysterious in this case obviously they know it's the money and they want to go you know get something a little valuable for themselves before they have to trade it all away Mm -hmm. to the uh, in this case to the mercenaries there's another quote I want to play that happens right afterwards. So Chiana has fallen to the floor. She's seen the 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 spidery gold thingies that are crawling all over the tier below, destroying the ship essentially. They're, they damage the metal. They eat the metal. And she scares them off with the blowtorch she had brought along to open up the crates. And this is what Rigel's takeaway is. What the yachts were, those creatures, they look like... They look like our money. <sighs> our money's alive! You realize what that means? They're eating the ship! Yes, but we're poor. (laughs) The fate worse than not having a ship to live on, being poor. I would also like to point out, like, a couple of interesting things here. So the first is that without Rigel and Chiana's greed, they probably wouldn't have figured out about the money fast enough to save Moya. Yeah, because they wouldn't. Very good point. Because they knew something was going on, but no one had really seen the creatures yet, and so I think that they wouldn't have figured it out what it was, and they wouldn't have been able to contain it as quickly. And my other thing is just that I really, (laughs) I really like Rigel's takeaway because, ironically, it is very true. This is a ship <laughs> full of really poor, really proud people. And Rigel seems to be the only one that understands that you cannot eat your pride. Yes. Also, life is a lot easier with money. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Also, Just okay. life facts. So I, I briefly, this reminded me of something that I wanted to point out. I'm going to go back to the Natira Scorpius start, um, plot line for a second. And this is to say this. So Natira's second had been kind of saying, well, if you don't want the rest of the slaves, maybe we can have them to recoup our losses. Because Natira had fronted three times the amount that the lot was worth to purchase the slaves for Scorpius so that Scorpius could have Joppy. Scorpius is like, fine, you can have the slaves. And then he he has his marauders kill every slave that is not Joppy on their way back to the Shadow Depository. I would just like to point that out because it's really dark and it's also kind of very Scorpius. Yeah. And we we get a sense of it through Stark too, because he is a Stykira amongst his people because the other slaves were also Bannocks, which is his race. And he feels their deaths. And this is this lurching shriek that he gives. I think it's about the time when John's giving his plan for recruiting the others. That's when he starts to feel those deaths. And you know, it's 10,000 people. And I think that's one thing that's a little bit hard to get across in this episode because it's all stuff that takes off takes place off screen. It's like, that's a lot of people to murder. Yeah. That's like genocide. That's a lot right of people. Right there. I know. I, I honestly had to kind of picture it in terms of like football stadiums worth of people. You know, it was like so yeah. many people. So anyway, I just want to yeah. point that out because I had it in my notes and I was like, that's really dark even for Scorpius. And also really petty even for Scorpius. It's very petty, but I guess he takes his pettiness very seriously sometimes. Trying to find a nice way to talk about (laughs) genocide, but I can't because there's no good way to talk about it. I think he kind of saw it as getting back at Natira because Natira was going to give him metal-eating spiders that would have killed him on his marauder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, because the whole situation with the spiders is originated with her. Yeah. So now that they've figured out that the spiders are eating the ship, they have to come up with a solution. And after they capture one, they realize that the only way to kill them is extreme heat. Extreme heat. Higher temperatures than Moya can withstand. Suzanne makes this very dark decision. And I want to play it. You're feeling Moya's pain. What I feel, Moya feels a thousand times worse. Pilot, I think I found a solution. I want to flood Moya's affected areas with the Draxan vapor. After she has absorbed it into her body, you'll, you'll be able to ignite it electrically. Ignite? Waves of heat will course through her body, then flames. The creatures will be destroyed. You'd burn Moya? To save her. 
No! There must be another way! I haven't given up hope trying to find one, and I won't! But if we run out of time... Violet... You must believe me. This may be Moya's last hope. The Builders placed our fates in your care, Zan. Whatever you decide, we will abide by it. I really like that ending because this is such an episode of kind of callbacks. And I think that this is the first real callback that we've had to the fact that the Builders decided Zan is a good caretaker for Moya. So to have the good caretaker for Moya essentially saying, we're going to roast Moya to save her is uh, kind of tells you how desperate they are. And how serious the situation is. I think Pilot at one point says it's one ninth of Moya's body mass. So it feels a lot, very much of like, okay, you have gangrene in your leg. We're going to chop it off to save your life. Like this is the extreme reaction that you have to take in order to stop this infection that she has, this infestation. We haven't talked a whole lot about Zan yet this episode, but she really is the one in charge of this whole figuring out what's going on with these spiders. She enlists Chiana's help to go capture them. She keeps Rigel in line when he's giving her lip. She's very much lady priest scientist, I guess. I don't Mm -hmm. know. She's really in her element trying to solve this problem. And this is the only thing that she can see that happens. And she doesn't want to do it. Like, you can see it in her face. She's crying half the time when she's talking with Pilot about it. She comes back later to try and help take their pain when they actually ignite the the gas, the Drexon gas or whatever they're calling it. And side note, how come they have all these weird gases aboard? I think they have to, like, make it. I think it's something they have to, they make, have to it? make it because they talk okay. about like something in the episode about making it. I hope so. Because otherwise, okay. why do they <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> have all these gases aboard? Either way, they, I'm sure they can make it. But yeah, she's making this really, really difficult decision about about taking care of Moya. And it's and it is to save their lives. And I just feel for feel for all of them because it's so horrific. And the show does not shy away from how horrible this is afterwards you see you see well while it's happening you see pilot physically shaking like he cannot hold on to he's in so much pain and you have chiana come in who answers john and aaron who are calling back to the ship you know she lays her cheek against his claw in this really touching moment of of empathy and sympathy and trying to comfort him and then you have aaron and john walking through the melted hallways and it looks it's like desolation Mm -hmm. it it did really look like like somebody who was in a burn unit you know it looked like it had that kind of feel of like when a house has been burned and like just the walls are are like rippled from the heat and from the you know blackened and it was this kind of thing of like how could somebody recover from this how could moya recover from this because it was Mm -hmm. destroyed her and Going back to Chiana, this is another time when Chiana just steps up. You know, John is like flipping out and he's like, why is Moya on fire? What's going on? And she's like, everything we did, the only thing we could do, you have to come in. And she's the one that's like very adult about it. And I think that this episode also, there's another bit earlier where Scorpius calls and he demands to talk to John, but obviously they don't want to tell him that John is not on the ship. So she and Zan kind of try to bluff and then Stark kind of Stark pulls, you know, goes crazy and pulls off his mask and is like, I don't care about Jothy. You know, you can kill him. I don't care. And then he like cuts off the communication and she and Zan both get really, really physical with Stark and kind of confront him. And she has this line during that quote where she's essentially like, if anything happens to Jothy, you won't have to wait for Dargo. I will kill you. And it's that kind of, her being the grown-up that we know she can be, but that she doesn't like to play a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really like that confrontation with Stark on both Zan and Shiana's part because, you know, Zan has a relationship with Stark that's deeper than the others. Like, they are spiritual, they are friends, they are merging towards something else, maybe. But even she is so upset by this threat to Jothi that she is in Stark's face and she has him by his clothing and he's 
she's the one pushing him up against the wall. And then Chiana grabs him right afterwards and also threatens him, even while Stark's trying to say, oh, I was just bluffing him. I was just bluffing him. Yeah. So it's really nice to see that, see Zan, you know, she still has that darkness, that dark side of her, that really strong personality behind her priestliness and her softness. Mm -hmm. So I think the only thing we haven't really covered is john and scorpius at the end of the episode oh <laughs> it's so good it's so good let's just play it and then we can talk yes hello john you want the wormhole technology i want your implant out of my head so finally, the rift between us is not so great. You do what you gotta do. You win. As if there was ever any doubt. So John has just turned himself in. He is standing there. Scorpius is doing the interrogation kind of technique of walking around him. And John is just like, he seems like he has it together. He's offering this trade. I'll, you know, get your wormhole technology, but get this thing out of my head. But when he says, you win, I don't know. There's something in that that is just so, so lost. Mm -hmm. You know, he's like, he has nothing. He has literally nothing. All he could do, all his value was in saving Jothi. Mm -hmm. And he is giving himself over to Scorpius now, whom we know terrifies him. Yeah. Like we've seen all through this season, his, his losing thread with reality, his mistrust of himself. You know, he says in the look at the princess trilogy, like he's there in every corner and I'm scared and I'm tired. And how do I go on? And yet here he is. There is no going on. There is giving himself over. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the most brilliant things about Scorpius as a villain is like his closing line is, as if there's any doubt about this outcome. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. It's good. This whole scene is just good, good, good. I think a couple of things. I think number one, I like it as a closeout. I think that Scorpius is, as if there was any other doubt, makes him even more villainous in a really, really <laughs> good way. I also think, though, that we talked about in Look at the Princess, how John is, is holding on to hope. And that is it. You know, like hope. And if he doesn't have hope, he has nothing. And this is him giving up hope. And it's him essentially just saying, okay, the end because I think that John knows he's not getting out of this. Scorpius is going to take his brain and he is going to, he's going to slice it slice by slice by slice until he has exactly what he wants. And John will be dead at the end of it. Yeah. So I think that John giving up hope, it's almost like this, this trilogy has come to be a rebuttal of the look at the princess trilogy of if like the message of look at the princess is like, they're going to survive. This trilogy has begun to feel like, no matter what they do, Scorpius will always be better, stronger, faster, smarter. Yeah, it's the it's the inevitability of Scorpius that makes him such a good villain. That all roads lead to Scorpius with his hands on John's brain. And the other thing about that is is this is only part two of a three part episode, and then we have the season finale on top of that. We're not even at the end of it yet. We are we're. Just, still going on this downward spiral of where how far is john going to fall which is kind of what's been going on all season with the neuroclone arc we first saw in crackers don't matter which is episode four and you've seen it progressively popping up more and more and more uh, we obviously have won't get fooled again where we finally realize what's going on and john losing more and more control of himself with last episode and and now now it's not just the neural chip taking over. Now it's the situation has manipulated John into giving up himself of his own free will, mm -hmm. which is almost worse. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I think that that's kind of the other part of it is that so John had this whole thing at the beginning of like, no, we can still save Jothy. And he like makes the dream team. And then in the end, it's it's like he he is the first one to know that it's not going to work. And he's the first mm-hmm. one to say, OK, I give in. I give up. Yeah. Yet another instance of plans on Farscape not going to plan. Yep. Yep, which is actually so. real real life. You know what I mean? Yeah, it is. So, yeah, on that cheery note, what would you give this episode? I'd give it a four. I think it's a really dense episode that has a lot of really good story going on that drives it. I think it, yeah, I think it's just a really solid four-level episode. It didn't blow me away because I think some of the characters, there's... Not all the characters have moments to shine, but everyone still plays a really good role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would almost go like a 3.5 because I had some pacing issues with this episode. I just think they spent a lot of time on stuff that wasn't as important as the stuff they did spend a ton of time or they didn't spend a lot of time on. And I think that there was some there were some kind of like mental loopholes that I had to jump through in order to get through this episode, like how did Scorpius get to the slaves ahead of them and other questions and how did their little ships get so far so fast? <laughs> and, and yeah. there was just like a lot of stuff that was kind of like, uh, okay, I'll take it. It's Farscape magic. Sure. That I didn't quite buy as much as I usually do. Okay. Also, how did they know exactly where everybody was? Cause everybody was not in the same place. <laughs> Farscape magic. Okay, yeah, you're right. Farscape magic. <laughs> They needed them all. On wardrobe watch, um, everyone's usually in what they usually wear. Chiana is wearing her her kind of more stripy outfit as opposed to her, her more leopardy outfit. But everyone else seems to be in what they usually wear. Mm-hmm. Bakesh is in formal priest robes, which apparently mm-hmm. he took from the guy he murdered. <laughs> Side note, he converted yes. after he murdered the guy that was trying to convert him. <laughs> join us next week for liars guns and money part three. Oh, i remembered something i wanted to say okay uh i know this episode's really long sorry peeps but the title of this episode is liars guns and money part two with friends like these and i think it's an interesting nod because the phrase is with friends like these who needs enemies right and so the whole episode kind of feels like it's coming at it from that which is Dargo's perspective, which is who needs enemies when I have friends like John and Aaron and Zan who are undermining me and not helping me get my son back. But then the end of it is that John loves his friend so much that he is willing to give himself up. And also, I mean, and also we have to give in that John is sick and tired of having the neural clone, but mostly (laughs) it is to save Jothy. And so in that sense, it kind of does become a with friends like these you know, Dargo doesn't really need, you know, that these are Dargo's true friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I like that. So join us next week with Liars, Guns, and Money Part 3, Plan B. All right. We are Farscape Friday podcast on Gmail and Tumblr and Dreamwith and Farscape Friday on Twitter. If you like us, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. That helps other people find us. And we will see you next time. Bye.